Hey everyone, it's Marvin. Uh, sorry for checking in a little bit later this week. Um, as you may have inferred, the Good Pop Culture Club hiatus continues this week as we recover from our month abroad. Um, Jess is back home, uh, but she is still um, jet lagged as all heck. So we probably won't be back with new episodes until the week after next. Uh, but in the meantime, I did want to leave you with a little something in case you, in case you still haven't subscribed to my other podcast, Books and Boba. Uh, I'm sharing this month's book news episode uh, for October 2023. Um, where once again, we go over the latest Asian American book news, um, as well as cover the latest um, shenanigans from the publishing industry. And again, if you like what you hear, um, feel free to subscribe to the podcast, as well as um, check out our other great pods on the Podcast Collective. Um, So yeah, please enjoy the October book news episode of Books and Boba. You're listening to... And welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Rira Yu. And we are here today for our October 2023 mid-month book news check-in. Um, as always, the Books and Boba podcast is supported by our listeners at patreon.com slash booksandboba. So if you're looking for uh, more Books and Boba content, head on over, um, become a member where you get access to our members-only Discord server, as well as our monthly bonus Boba Chat episodes. Um, but yeah, I'm back. Um you're back from yeah. Europe. Yeah, <laughs> I'm still. I just got back from Europe on Sunday. Um. So, what was your favorite city uh, that you visited? Um. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll be sharing. I'll be sharing more oh, stories. Give us a teaser, Boba chat. But, um, I liked um. I liked Barcelona. Um, oh yeah, I enjoyed Barcelona. Italy. It was funny because like. We probably did this wrong, but we had to fit in. Like one of our our friends, um, Jess Ju, who was my co-host, like the Good Pop Culture Club podcast that I do, um, was getting married in Florence. So we had to like move our itinerary around. So we went from Madrid to Barcelona to Rome to Florence. And oh God! Basically, what what ended up happening was, as every city we went to, it felt like we were getting less and less amenities. Like Spain was fine. Spain was very connected. It's very metropolitan. Lots of public transit. And then we get to Rome and there's only like two subway lines and none of them go through the center of where we need to go. So it's a lot more walking, a lot more buses. And then we get I mean, to... It's an ancient city, so I can totally <laughs> understand why. Well, yeah, because you can't dig a subway tunnel through ancient ruins, right? But yeah, and then we hit Florence and there's like no subway at all. So it's all... But the good thing is Florence is a much smaller city, but... I mean, you've been to Italy, right? You know all about it. Like- no, I haven't. I actually have never been to Italy. And it is definitely on my bucket list because um, Dan's family, they're you know Italian-American. So uh, I don't think they have any family over there. But um, obviously, like, I've always wanted to go. Uh, I almost studied abroad in Florence because uh, I almost minored. I almost <laughs> double minored in Renaissance art history. So, um, yeah, well, then you probably love it. And I were supposed to <laughs> supposed to go. And it just turns out that she just went without me. Um, so I'm super <laughs> jealous because like the the dorms that um, 
NYU students stayed in in Florence. It's like beautiful old house. And I'm like, God damn, my my aesthetics were like I missed the aesthetic era of of <laughs> of a lifetime. So yeah, I still have regrets over it. But one day, one day. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. Um I'm really glad that you had a great time in Barcelona and Italy. Um, I did not know that Jess was getting married. Uh, so, yeah, getting married abroad, that's that's something. Yeah, that is something. Um, she had a beautiful wedding at a Tuscan villa. Yeah. I mean, I'm always impressed by people who do destination weddings, especially in a country where, like, the primary language is not English. Because I'm like, how... Did you like? How did you plan that? That's it's because everyone speaks English, especially in the hospitality industry. I guess so. Yeah, but also like like you know, marriage license. It's it's different in in Europe as well. Well, so. you so the way that you do a destination wedding like that is you actually get married first in the states. Ah, we cheat. Okay. Yeah. So the ceremony happened in Italy, but they had already done their civil ceremony um, a couple months ago. Um, yeah because you can't it's like i've looked it up before and like for for england for example you have to apply for a wedding license like a month in advance in order to get like yeah properly married or if you're like you get married ahead of time i I, I guess it it depends on how proper you want to do it like do you want to sign the marriage license the day you get married or is it just more for like the celebration because um, I think most people that I know that do international weddings, they get married before they leave. So officially they're married, but they don't do their ceremony with their friends and family until mm, they go abroad. Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah. you guys have learned a lot about the um, destination wedding process. <laughs> Hopefully for some of you, that is useful knowledge. Yeah. Uh, well, we're not here to talk about my Europe vacation or international weddings, though. We're here to go over the latest Asian American book and publishing news um, for the month of October um, that Rira has graciously compiled through uh, Publishers Weekly and the Internet. So, yeah, let's get started. Um, Rira, do you want to start us off with our first book deal? Yeah, sure. Okay, so our first book deal is Salman Rushdie sold his memoir, Knife, Meditations After an Attempted Murder to Random House. The memoir is about the attempt on the author's life by a knife-wielding terrorist in Chautauqua, New York in August 2022, some 30 years after a fatwa was ordered against him by Ayatollah Khomeini for writing these satanic verses. The book will be published simultaneously in 15 territories in April 2024, and Rushdie said in a statement, this was a necessary book for me to write. Uh, it, it It was a way to take charge of what happened and to answer violence with art. I remember we covered this news. It was it was crazy when we like first heard about it. It was it was just so random. Yeah, I mean there's been a there's been not a few stories like this where artists have been attacked. I know um David Henry Huang was also attacked by a with a knife, but I think that was more of a random mugging than like a politically motivated attack. Yeah. I know that the knife attack it like left Salman Rushdie uh half blind. And I think he like injured his hand as well. So I don't know how he um, maybe he like dictated his memoir and was able to like write it that way. But I can't imagine like 2022. That was that was a year ago. So yeah. like right after right after he got attacked, he's like, I'm going to write everything while I'm in the hospital bed. That's 
you know, that's a level of grit that that's impressive. Yeah. Sometimes you just need to, especially if you're a creative person, um, need to process the shock and grief and trauma the only way you know how. And for writers, I'm sure that involves putting stuff on paper. Yeah. 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 All right, our next deal. The HarperCollins imprint Alita bought in an exclusive submission an untitled middle-grade historical fiction novel by Karina Yang-Glazer. Um, told in alternating voices, two young people from New York City's Chinatown in 1931 and China's Tang Dynasty in 731 are connected through the Silk Roots and are faced with impossible decisions as they try to save their families and livelihoods. Publication is scheduled for winter 2025. Yeah, this book has two vastly different uh, time periods, New York City, Chinatown, 1931, and uh, China's Tang Dynasty in 731. Uh, I love how both of them are like historical time periods, like even the Chinatown one is like not in our time (laughs) period. Yeah, Um, and it's a very like we've seen this uh, mechanic before, right? Like two people from different time periods communicating through some medium, right? We saw it. like it's a very classic like C drama, K drama, um, conceit. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of a uh, Map of Salt and Stars by Zane Jukadar, which mm-hmm. we've read for book club. And yeah. it's, you know, it's like a <laughs> story between like modern day Syria and then it goes back in time to um like a couple hundred years ago. So yeah, yeah it's a very effective uh narrative structure. And the Tang Dynasty, I at least personally, I don't think it's been portrayed in at least Western literature as much as, say, the Ming or the Han or the even the Qing dynasty. I think we mostly see a Qing dynasty, which is the latest one because of the evocative hair braids. And as we all know, 1930s post-war aesthetic is like one of my favorite aesthetics because everyone just looks really cool in it. So, um, yeah, looking forward to learning more about Karina's new book. All right, next up, Candlewick Press bought World Rights to One Mad Cat by Vicky Fang, a young graphic novel series about a mad cat and her not-so-mad friends who, along with young readers, use clues to solve simple mysteries. The first book will be published in fall 2025. Okay, is this a mad cat or a mad cat? Like, What do you mean? Like mad no, as just- in angry or mad as in like mentally unstable? Um, I'm... I don't know. My my head just went to Alice in Wonderland, you know, like the Mad Hatter. But uh, not everything is uh, not everything is tied to Alice in Wonderland when it comes to uh, the term mad. So I don't know. Yeah. But I love I love mysteries. And, um, you know, it's it's always fun to have uh, mystery portrayed in graf- graphic novels because you get to see like the clues and uh, you get to solve along. I feel like those are. A lot easier to solve along than actual like mystery novels because <laughs> you have to like pay attention more. But um, yeah, this sounds really fun. Um, yeah, sounds cool. Um, our next deal, Coca-Cola bought world rights to Zuni and the Memory Jar, written by Aisha Saeed and illustrated by Neha Rawat. The story introduces sweet, silly, ever so charming Zuni, whose family keeps a memory jar for the greatest achievements, which Zuni has her own ideas about. Publication is set for summer 2024. I'm not sure what a memory jar is. Is that like a like a time capsule type of thing? It could be. Or I don't know if this is like a real thing or if this is a magical thing. But I feel like that's that's a lot of pressure, you know? 
because it's like your family. It's like look at all the accomplishments that your family has achieved, and then you're like, oh, can I actually put anything in the memory jar? I feel like that is a lot of pressure to put on yourself as a as a kid. Okay, I did a Google, and Google says that, or Wikipedia says that. A memory jar is a general term for a vessel whose surface is adorned with an assortment of broken china, glass shards, and small objects, especially items associated with a dead person. They are also called forget-me-not jugs, mourning jugs, memory vessels, spirit jars, ugly jugs, and whimsy jars. Ah, interesting. Okay, then I can see why this is like a picture book because you have, like like you said, it's it's like comprised of like different shards. And um, I, I'm pretty sure it will make like a beautiful imagery. Yeah. All right. Next up, Roaring Brook bought world rights for Bread is Love, written by Pooja Makijani and illustrated by Lavanya Naidu. The picture book is about a mother and her child sharing a beautiful bond during their ritual bread making. And another untitled picture book is set to be published. Publication is scheduled for spring 2025. Bread is Love. I love bread. I agree. <laughs> um, that's this sounds really cute. Um, I wish I had bread making memories with my family, but we're not really a bread making people. I mean, we're East Asian. Bread's yeah. not really part of our culture. We're more like we're more rice. and dumplings um, and rice. Yes, but obviously, like in West Asia, in India, like bread is like a very big thing. Like a lot of. Um, like I I know that like in a lot of communities they have like a communal oven. So like all of the women in the village would like have a day for just baking all of their bread for their family and it's like a huge thing. The bottom line is bread is love, and I agree. <laughs> Congrats to Pooja um on the book deal. Um next up, Union Square Kids bought at auction World Rights to Crossing the Finish Line by Tushanti Pongwira and illustrated by Matili Joshi. The picture book is about the courage and perseverance of 1964 Sri Lankan Olympian Ranatunga Karunananda and the ways in which we define success. Publication is slated for spring 2025. I love stories about Olympians. They're so <laughs> inspiring. And also as someone who is like completely non-athletic, it's always like really impressive to me. Um, yeah. Yeah. 1964. Um, wow, that's that's a long time ago. <laughs> So I think um, I'm, I'm reading up on the Wikipedia article on Ranatunga, and it sounds like it's a cool running situation where he finished last in the 10,000 meter race. Um, but that was considered like, you know, he went the distance and so he was celebrated for finishing. Ah, okay. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a lot of the times we're always cheering for the winners and don't really care about anybody else who finished second or... Or last, uh, to say the least. So, yeah, it's a pretty inspiring story. Yeah. All right, next up, Kids Can Press acquired April de la Noche Mills, author-illustrator debut, Nora at Night, a picture book about a creative girl who is sensitive to the noisy chaos daytime brings, but finds joy and comfort in the softer nighttime sounds. Publication is planned for 2026. ASMR at night? <laughs> I guess. Um, I mean... Nighttime sounds can be pretty relaxing. Unless um, you live in California and you hear coyotes. Oh. It's not always, just sometimes. I don't know. It, de- it depends. Coyotes <laughs> and They're very um, yappy animals. It's like a very they have a very high pitched, like whiny. It's bark. spooky. <laughs> it's spooky. Yeah. 
But I understand the whole like sensitive to noisy chaos because I definitely <laughs> am very like sound sensitive. So yeah, sometimes I wish I had headphones throughout the day so I don't have to like deal with all of that. So that is a very uh, relatable problem. Yeah. All right. Next up, Europa Editions acquired world rights to Iranian Australian novelist Shokufe Azar's newest title, Legal Carentry in the Middle of Our Kitchen, which is a magical realist story that spans five decades in Iran from the 1979 Islamic Revolution to the 2022 Gina Revolution. A former newspaper reporter in Iran, Azar has lived in exile in Australia since 2011. Her previous novel, The Enlightenment of the Green Gage Tree, was a finalist for the International Booker Prize and the National Book Award for Translated Literature. Publication is set for fall 2024. So the 2022 Gina Revolution, for those of you guys who are unaware, um, back in September 2022, a um, a young woman by the name of Gina Masa. Amini was arrested by um, Iranian police for, quote unquote, improperly wearing her job and um, was severely beaten, according to her family and local media. And she died three days later. And uh, her death sparked like a huge movement uh, with women taking off their hijabs and cutting off their hair and really um, just having like this rallying cry for for women in Iran. So this is a pretty recent, like I said, it happened in 2022. So it's it's a very like recent event that happened in history. So it's really cool that this book covers from 1979 Islamic Revolution to a modern day revolution in Iran. Yeah. Okay. Next up, HarperCollins imprint Balzer and Bray bought in an exclusive submission the Tales from Cabin 23 created by Justina Ireland and Hannah Alkoff. And it is a series of creepy middle-grade tales of terror in the tradition of goosebumps that are inspired by ghosts, monsters, and legends from diverse cultures. And each book will be written by a different author. Uh, Book one, The Boo Hag Flex, will be written by Ireland. And book two, Night of the Living Head, will be written by Alkoff. Publication is set for summer 2024. This sounds like something that would be your jam, Marvin, considering that you used to read a lot of Goosebumps books. Yeah, I mean, I think middle grade creepy stories is much more palatable. Um, You know, it's usually like morality tales and there's a lot more um, humor involved in it, too. Kind of like tongue in cheek stuff. Um, Middle school Marvin definitely would have picked some of these books up. Yeah. And I love how we are getting like monster tales from other cultures, you know, because... You know, um, I I feel like Asia in particular, our monsters are very scary. Our (laughs) ghosts are horrendously scary. Yeah. Our ghosts are a little bit more more angry, I feel like, sometimes. Yeah, we're vengeful. (laughs) We we hold grudges, like, even past death. Yeah. Well, congrats to Justina and Hannah um, for the book deals. Um, All right. Next up, Crown acquired Be Careful Shaoxing, uh, written by Alice Pong. And illustrated by Sheryl Ng. Uh, the story is about a boy who believes he is a warrior, but must contend with a family who thinks the world is too dangerous for him. Publication is planned for fall 2024. This is pretty funny because I'm assuming the boy's name is Xiaoxing, which is literally Mandarin for be careful. Oh, that's a cute, that's a cute <laughs> pun then. Yeah. yeah. I would not have known that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of 
amazed that um, the main character is a boy because I feel like with girls, it's it's always like you cannot go outside. You will get kidnapped. You will, like the world is a dangerous place. You cannot even go to the bathroom by yourself. So like I feel like for some families, it doesn't matter. Um, That's true. Like children yeah. are children, even if they're adults. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Next up, Roaring Brook Press bought Auntie Q's Golden Claws Nail Salon by Van Huang, the author of Girl Giant and the Monkey King. And the book is a contemporary middle grade novel in which a 12 year old girl begrudgingly spends her summer working at her aunt's nail salon. But as she gets to know her aunties and uncles that work there, she begins to see them, her parents and her heritage in a new light. Publication is slated for spring 2025. Wow, what a what a relatable immigrant tale where your <laughs> uh, family forces you to uh, work part time at their family business. And I think it's a really good lesson to teach kids to you, you know interrogate their own privileges as children of immigrants and maybe be a little bit more curious about the work that their parents do to make sure that they have the lifestyle that they have. All right, our next deal: Kanaf preempted Gina Wynn's middle grade graphic novel debut tentatively titled Dust, in which 11-year-old Bao, grieving his father's death, finds a dust bunny behind his bed that doesn't just come to life, but eats Bao's emotional messes for him. Publication is planned for 2026, and um, a second book is also included in the deal. I wouldn't mind a dust bunny that would eat my emotional messes. I feel like life would be so much better if I just had a someone who can uh, take those burdens away from, from my brain. As someone who is allergic to dust, this sounds like not a good time for me. <laughs> um, it's either be emotionally a mess or have hives on your face and be oh, be God. unable to open your eyes. And I I pick I'd rather be an emotional mess. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Next up, Salam Reads bought the first two books in Dr. Seema Yasmin's new chapter book series called Muslim Mavericks. Each book will explore a groundbreaking Muslim who is making their mark on the world. The first book, which is about a comedian and disability activist, Maysoon Zaid, will be published in 2025. That's so cool. I know that we've had uh, books about like East Asian scientists and uh, like and like women, like pioneering women. But it's nice to have like a specific series for um, Muslim readers that have like Muslim role models. Yeah, there's definitely room for a lot more specificity in these types of books. And it's cool to see, you know, people like um, disabled comedians being recognized for their own groundbreaking works. So yeah, this sounds really cool. It also sounds like a series that would be definitely banned in schools, but we will talk <laughs> about book banning later in this episode. Yikes. Yeah. All right. Um, next up, Chronicle acquired world rights at auction to Chopsticks R, dot, 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 written by Chloe Ito Ward and illustrated by Lynn Scurfield. This picture book celebrates the versatility and significance of chopsticks and how they are a powerful way to bring people together at life's great multicultural table. Publication is scheduled for spring 2026. Now, some of you guys may not know this, but uh, our chopsticks are all different. <laughs> so like Chinese chopsticks, they tend to be like super long um, and they're like what, like pretty thick to hold. Uh, Japanese chopsticks, which I feel like is like the most regular 
regularly use chopsticks in America. They're like more tapered at the ends and uh, they're like the length of a of a pen, like a normal pencil. And then Korean chopsticks, believe it or not, they're flat and they're metal. So I had to I had to like clarify this with a friend of mine recently (laughs) because she was writing a book and uh, she had a scene where uh, like a Korean a Korean character was like, oh, yeah, like my dad makes uh, my dad's a carpenter. And like some of the things that he makes are, you know, chopsticks. And I was like, that's that can't be accurate. No, no. Our chopsticks are metal. Korean utensils tend to be metal. Right. Um, yeah. yeah, it's really interesting because they're used essentially the same. But when you go out to um, dinner at different restaurants, you can kind of tell, like, like especially like in Korean restaurants, like, man, these these chopsticks are real flat. Yeah, but it, it, if you can use them properly, they're very good for picking <laughs> out small things um, like yeah. beans and such. Do, do, do your parents, were your parents very strict with uh, your chopstick wielding? Because my parents were. We weren't because my family, from my grandfather to my father to myself, hold it wrong. So uh, oh. we're not exactly. Wait, what do you mean you hold it wrong? Do you hold we, it in like the cross pattern? Yeah. <gasps> we cross the Marvin. ends. Barbarian. I mean, it's just how people from our village probably did it. So yeah, I know, I know. I'm, I'm totally <laughs> joking, but um, yeah, my family was uh, very strict. I feel like um, I could not eat with the adults until I learned how to like use chopsticks properly without any like any of like the assistance that they give kids, like with the rubber bands or um, or <laughs> it's like connected at like the end yeah. to like help with wielding, but. Yeah, whenever I had to, whenever I had to teach my white friends how to use chopsticks, I would be very strict as well. So this is a trait that has been passed on to me from my family. Wow. Generations of trauma. That's really know, generational trauma really is trauma. a thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next up, Learner's Imprint Carol Rhoda acquired world rights to What Sparks a Fire, written by Livia Blackburn and illustrated by Nicole Shu. This nonfiction picture book chronicles the forces that brought about the Los Angeles massacre of 1871, a brutal attack on the city's Chinese immigrant community. Publication is slated for spring 2025. I feel like I know about this, but I don't remember exactly. It is a, especially whenever there's an uptick in like violence against Asians, it's something that gets brought up um, because it's one of the you know, the biggest, it's it's one of the most, I don't want to say high profile, but like one of the most, like, I guess, striking instances of like mass violence against Asian Americans in America. Uh, so this story emerges a lot during, on social media during times of like elevated violence against Asian Americans. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm like looking it up right now and it's like the mass lynching of yeah. Uh, Chinese immigrants. Now it's all coming back to me. So it's a yeah. story that we're becoming more familiar with because it's gets brought up a lot but at the same time um um and so i think there are actually a couple projects like film tv and book projects that um that are focusing on this this incident so this is i guess one of them yeah i mean what is what a very serious and grim topic for a picture book but i feel like it's very important for kids to know their history yeah and again a book that will probably get banned (laughs) if um if these parent groups have their way because it shows America in a not good light. All right. Um, next up, Beaming Books bought world English rights to To List Thanksgiving by Christina Wong and illustrated by Sienna Kim. 
The picture book is about the ingredients, tastes, smells, and traditions at a mixed Korean American family's Thanksgiving meal. Publication is planned for fall 2025. I already know that this Thanksgiving is is smashing, you know, because <laughs> the food is just like, I do. So good. I do love like Asian immigrant families' interpretations of Thanksgiving dinner. Like my family definitely does it different than anyone else. Um, and the whole <laughs> and you you know the biggest difference that I've seen is um, like I feel like most immigrant families don't do the whole Thanksgiving dinner at two p.m. thing that American families tend to do. Yeah, I mean, the earliest that we've eaten has been at, like, 4 p.m. Growing up, my family did our Thanksgiving dinner during normal dinner time, which is, like, 6.30 p.m. That's so heavy, though, because you're eating more than usual. Well, also, our stuff is different. Okay, I was going to ask you, like, what do you guys serve at your Thanksgiving dinner? And um, We have the turkey. We do the the Asian, like, like I mentioned, the Asian potato salad, you know, the ones with um, where the potatoes are in chunks. Not very mayonnaise and there's usually apples in it, um, like a buttered corn, and sometimes there's a broccoli. Okay, yeah, like my family's Thanksgiving dinners are pretty heavy because, um, like, the meat that we serve, it's not turkey. It's usually, like, kalbi or mm. um, some kind of, like, thick Korean slices of meat that you put on the grill. Um and obviously, we have like pickled side dishes. We have garlicky food, so it's it's a lot to eat. So obviously, eating it at like four p.m. is more advised as opposed to eating it at like seven or eight. <laughs> yeah, but we don't really do like the casseroles and the mac and cheeses. Like we don't really. There's not I a lot bring of cream. the casserole and mac and cheeses because my parents <laughs> like they obviously they're only cooking like Asian food or uh, or stuff that they can easily heat up. So I remember like one Thanksgiving, um, I didn't bring a mac and cheese casserole or a sweet potato casserole, which are usually like my go-to things to bring to Thanksgiving dinners. And they got mad at me. They were like, where's where's the white people like, <laughs> dishes? And I'm like, I didn't make it. My, like, And they're like, well, why can't you make it now? And it's like, because I would have to go to the grocery store. Yeah, it's it's a whole thing. Um I just love how Thanksgiving was not a tradition in in my family's house for the entirety of my adolescence. They only started celebrating Thanksgiving after I went to college. So oh. now I'm like mandated to make stuff and to come to Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, we originally didn't do Thanksgiving until we went to another family's Thanksgiving dinner. And my dad decided that he could do it better next year. Oh my God, it's so Asian. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think that was maybe like first or second grade for me. So yeah, so it took us a while to like get into the swing of the American holidays too. All right, next up, Holiday House acquired S.R. Apavu's debut young adult horror graphic novel, The Ghost Key, in which a trans high school senior haunted by grief and prophetic dreams of death after the loss of their sister must fight the ghost of their guilt and come to terms with themselves to prevent the imminent tragedy in their new recurring nightmare. Publication is set for summer 2026. This sounds like real creepy times. Sounds like a horrible time. <laughs> <laughs> also, like losing your sister, like that's terrible. Yeah. And, you know, there's also a layer of um, it being about a trans high school senior. So um, there's additional layers 
in this in this horror onion. Horror onion. Yeah. That's a very apt description. <laughs> well, congrats to SR um, for their book deal. Um, next up, Mad Cave Studios and Maverick bought The Three Beasts, a YA action-adventure graphic novel set in a fantastical Philippines-inspired land by debut author-illustrator Jillian Pascasio. A sword-wielding trio of lesbian and trans friends risk facing a deadly hydra and losing each other to succeed their legendary dragon tamer fathers. Publication is slated for 2025. Wow, wow, wow. So we have a trio of uh, lesbian and trans uh, sword wielders with hydras and dragon tamers. Lots of things going on in this book. And Yeah, and all in a Philippines-inspired fantasy world. So lots of keywords that sound like a lot of fun. So yeah, looking forward to seeing um, Three Beasts when it comes out. All right, next up, HarperCollins and Alida acquired Newberry medalist Linda Sue Park's Gracie Under the Waves, a middle-grade novel starring a young snorkeling enthusiast who draws inspiration for fighting climate change from interacting with her pesty little brother. Publication is scheduled for fall 2024. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like we're, we're going to be seeing more and more books about climate change, especially for kids, uh, because for better or worse, that's the world they're going to be living in. Yeah, have you ever gone snorkeling before? I have. Um, when I was in Hawaii uh, almost 10 years ago, um, we went snorkeling out in the, in the cove. Um, I think I saw some turtles, but, you know, it was a pretty crowded cove. So um, not a lot of not a lot of like it wasn't like one of those pristine like coral reef type things. I've never gone snorkeling, but I'm guessing that, you know, you see a lot of beautiful things when you're under the waves. And of course, climate change, uh, global warming will take all of that away. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Important to teach kids uh, early on. All right. Um, our next deal, Lerner and Carol Rolda bought world rights to Zena Lost and Found, a middle grade adventure mystery by debut author Shafak Khan. In the early 1970s, Zena searched for an elusive treasure and for her recently vanished parents, take her from her London home to her parents' native Pakistan and across the Middle East famous hippie trail. Publication is scheduled for fall 2025. So um, Google is your friend. So I looked up the hippie trail on <laughs> Wikipedia, and it's the name given to an overland journey taken by members of the hippie subculture and others from the mid-1950s to the late 1970s, traveling from Europe and West Asia um, through to South Asia. Uh, the trail was a form of alternative tourism, and one of the key elements was traveling as cheaply as possible. Uh, mainly to extend the length of time away from home. So I guess it's like the modern equivalent of backpacking. Yeah, that makes sense. 1970s, I can see that. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I wonder if there's like a layer of like appropriation in there because I imagine um, most of the people that Zena will be traveling with are probably white hippies. That that sounds <laughs> like a journey. Yeah. All right. All right, next up, Bloomsbury bought in a preempt The Serpent Rider by Isabel Magnodino, a middle-grade fantasy inspired by Filipino folklore in which a spunky warrior in training must battle a treacherous sorcerer, a legendary sea serpent, and her own insecurities to save her sister. Publication is slated for fall 2024. More yeah. Filipino folklore books. It seems to be like we are we are approaching the time of Filipino uh like <laughs> fantasy adventures yeah, with like fantasy. swords and sorcery. Yeah, this sounds really cool. 
Um, our next deal, Disney Hyperion bought world rights to Lon Chomp's picture books. What a weirdo and what a world. When a girl looks for friends and they call her weird, it shows up. It won't go away. And worse, it gets bigger and bigger until she realizes that there might be something special about her and it. And friendship can come from the most unlikely places. Publication is scheduled for fall 2026 and 2027. Okay, immediately my mind went to it, the Stephen King. Horror. Oh, God. <laughs> so I was just is like, what do you mean it clown? shows up? <laughs> oh, wouldn't that be cool, though? Not really. That. That movie, like not, I haven't seen the the new films, but the original television miniseries, like really did a number on me when I was a child. Oh gosh, yeah. Um, but I'm guessing that the it that Lan uh, portrays in their book, it's like an imaginary friend. That's the feeling that I'm getting. Maybe, yeah. Hopefully, it's not a deadly serial killing clown. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> All right, our last book deal. In a partnership with Farshore UK, HarperCollins won at auction Lost and Found at the Gudwara by author-illustrator Baljinder Carr. This search-and-find picture book follows a girl as she helps her family and friends at the Gudwara locate items as they prepare to celebrate the Nagar Kirtan until she gets lost in the crowd and must find her way back. Publication is slated for winter 2026. Yeah, a Gudwara, um, again, I googled this, is a place of assembly and worship for Sikhs. Um, it sounds like, okay, so it says search and find picture book. So is it kind of like, uh, where is Waldo? Where you have to like find I think uh, so. lost items. Yeah, that sounds fun. Yeah, I know quite a few people and kids who love a good like hidden object search game. So um, this would be probably like, a perfect book for them. Yeah, love interactive books for sure. <laughs> So yeah, that'll do it for our publishing announcements for October 2023. Uh, moving on to our new segment, uh, we have one main story, uh, which we alluded to earlier in the episode. Um, not necessarily about book bans, but um, there's some shenanigans happening um, regarding book fairs, right, Rua? Yeah, so have, did you grow up with Scholastic Book Fairs? I as, did. As I mean, I grew up. Yeah. I grew up with Scholastic book fairs, as well as like the Scholastic like, monthly book order forms. Did you guys have? Did you have those? Yeah, as a yeah. Kid? My my school was like definitely big on the Scholastic book fairs and like the order forms. That's how yeah. most kids got their books, and um, it's really unfortunate that this piece of news is happening. So Scholastic recently curated books uh, about race and sexuality into an entirely separate collection called Share Every Story, Celebrate Every Voice. And this is a selection that elementary schools can opt out of. Actually, recently I heard that you have to opt in to get these books. So if you forget to opt in, you do not get these diverse titles for your book fair. So writers and educators on social media, they've been criticizing Scholastic, a multi-billion dollar company, mind you, uh, for helping to enable book bans, book restrictions, and uh, for not really taking a strong enough stance against them, especially when uh, so many states are going through um, book ban legislations, teachers are getting fired for having their own uh, personal uh, personal libraries where they have diverse titles. Um, some of the 60 or so titles in this collection includes the ABCs of Black History, All Are Welcome, which is a children book by Alexandra Penfold, which features same-sex and interracial parents. Uh, we have um, 
his like historical fiction. We also have historical nonfiction titles like Justice Kentanji, which is by uh, Dennis Lewis Patrick, which charts the path of Kentanji Brown Jackson, uh, who became the first black woman to serve on the Supreme Court. Um, and there's like a lot of picture books and graphic novels um, about, you know, race, gender, sexuality. And um, yeah. it's really unfortunate that that Scholastic is making it very easy for schools in conservative states to just get rid of all of these titles. And this is to be to be clear, this is specifically for elementary schools. So Scholastic has said their middle their middle grade and their um, older readers selections, they're untouched. But the elementary schools, they have all of diverse titles pretty much separated into this one. Culture. Which is wild because that's that's the age group where like having access to diverse books may be the most impactful. And I mean, they made a statement on last Friday, October 13th, where they defended their decision um, to create the new collection, um, stating these laws create an almost impossible dilemma. Um, I guess re- referring to laws made by states and counties um, regarding um, animal books and parent choice and things like that. Um, they can either back away from these titles or risk making teachers, librarians, and volunteers vulnerable to being fired, sued, or prosecuted. We don't pretend the solution is perfect, but the other option would be to not offer these books at all, which is not something that we consider. Which, in the That's end... That's such a cop-out answer. Yeah, in, in because it's pretty easy to see that, sure... That's that can be a way you can justify this, like you're protecting teachers from being sued, but it doesn't address the core argument that books just shouldn't be banned, like especially these types of books, right? And it's like you said, this makes it easy for them to still have their book fairs and not have to worry about dealing with books that may be banned. Them saying like, oh, like the only option is to the only other option is to not offer these books at all. I'm like but an option that you can give is to make it harder for schools to take these diverse titles out. Why did you compile them all into one collection? And why did you make schools have to opt in rather than that being the default choice? Like, why are you making it easy for, like, <laughs> like I just don't understand. It's, well, it's because they're cowards and because it's easier for them. They probably have some lawyers or some, like, strategist telling them that this way they won't accidentally piss parents off this way like the default is these books are not part of our offering and if the school decides that they want these books they can tell us and we'll bring them in it's it's a combination of like laziness inertia and just fear and cowardice Okay, but like what I don't understand is like I obviously like I am not a lawyer, so I haven't looked at the actual letter of the um, book banning laws that have been suggested. But like Scholastic Book Fair, that's external from the school program, right? They're not being those books are not being implemented into uh, English studies. These this is a book fair for kids to buy their personal reading books. So how is it that the school can interfere on that? It's it's just like there's a lot of like murkiness to it where I'm just like kids should be able to buy whatever books they want that are offered to them. And um, because Scholastic is not part of the curriculum, I feel like they should be able to offer any books in their title. 
So I feel like you're trying to apply logic to people who aren't logical because I know I feel like I can very easily see a situation where a parent is upset that a child brought a certain book back from the book fair and goes on a warpath to get not only the school in trouble, but also the company in trouble. And because there are laws out to back it up, they may have a case, right? So it really just comes down to Scholastic's not willing to fight this battle. They care more about being able to sell their books than to make a stand and make a statement that this is what they believe in, which is also pretty depressing, right? Like it would have been nice to see a corporation stand up for the, the importance of offering diverse books to kids, but you know, they're not, they're not willing to. So. Yeah. And like these book fairs at schools, they are the primary way for kids to buy books because how often do kids have, you know, they they get allowance from their parents to go to an actual bookstore. Like you also have to get transportation to a bookstore. Whereas like in school, they have the books set out for you and you get to pick whatever you want to read and you take those home directly. There There's like less obstacles that way. Hmm. And it's it's really unfortunate that uh, adults who are supporting book bans are interfering uh, with this with this process. And recently I saw a video with um, like, I think it was like middle graders in Georgia. They were talking about uh, how the book bans have been uh, affecting them. And they were, they were saying like, I've read every single book in like our classroom's library. There is nothing left for me to read. And it's so boring. And it made me realize that kids kids actually don't care about diverse stories like like the um it's like they they don't actively think about the race sexuality gender or like you know racist history like they just want to read something that's engaging and the fact that you're like taking out such a large number of selections is you know it, it it's not helping anyone yeah so what are people doing about this so We Need Diverse Books recently released a statement condemning Scholastic's decision. You can uh, look up the full statement on their website, uh, but uh, here's an excerpt. Diversity is not a choice. Scholastic must not treat history and the lived experiences of readers and authors' diverse identities as something that may be ignored or opted out of. Scholastic may choose to either support diverse books completely or submit to bigotry and fascism. The actions taken by a person or corporation are a direct result of their values and priorities. And Scholastic's recent misguided decision prioritizes profit over diversity and the welfare of students everywhere. We Need Diverse Books demands that Scholastic desegregate its book fairs, an institution that fostered a love of reading for generations of American children, and stand on the right side of history by using its strength and corporate resources to protect the freedom to read. And I'm yeah. just snapping my fingers. Yeah, go off. We need diverse books. Always, you know, taking the words straight out of my mouth. I mean, it really is segregation, right? Like you're essentially creating two classes of book fair and the default being the one with the help, the diverse books, which is pretty wild. In like 2023, like these parents who these parents who are trying to ban these books, like they're like, oh, like I don't want my kids to be exposed to, I guess, you know, 
gay couples, but they don't understand or they don't realize that some of those kids in those classrooms have gay parents. And it's like, you can't, like, how are you going to avoid that for the rest of your life? You know, this is life. You can't opt out of diversity like We Need Diverse Books says. Yeah. I mean, we're all living in a world, like, we're on the cusp of a world where, like, multiculturalism is just is. But there's, there's just so many people, especially people in power, fighting that and wanting to return to the good old days of segregation and not even caring about people that are not white, right? It's it's depressing because just like a few years ago, it felt like we were making real progress. And now it just feels like a lot of that progress has not only been clawed back, but we're like regressing. Like we're back in the days of like book bans are cool now, I guess. Like people want them. Yeah. And it's just so unfortunate that Scholastic, which is which has always been like the the head of children's literature in in this industry, they like they are just rolling over and just letting conservative parents do this to their children. I think it's just a disservice to to all yeah, children out there. I want to see the math where because again, like as a corporation, Scholastic makes all its decisions based on future profits and stuff. I want to see the math that convinces them that this is the better path. Like segregation of book fairs will actually lead to more sales for them than having more books on sale. Like it's, it's make it make sense, I guess. Like show us, show us your work, show us your regression model. So us show us your, your formulas. Like what exactly, what inputs are you like? What, how did you come up? with this calculation or is it just political cowardice also like the way that they're picking these books for their collection is ridiculous it's like oh this book was written by a black person gonna put it into the collection yeah. and i'm like really is that like the point of this book maybe it's just like a story about a girl going on an adventure and she just happens to be black but i guess because she's black she's going to be put into this collection separately what does that have to do with anything like i mean it might offend a white parent who hates black people. It's just, it's just so absolutely ridiculous. And uh, like we need diverse book says it's giving into bigotry and uh, fascism. So we do not need to make it easier. We do not need to make it easier for, uh, for, for the people out there who want to have book bans. It's yeah, just why. Well, the story is ongoing, so um, we'll keep it, we'll keep tabs on it. If there's any big, if anything happens, we'll let you know um, next month. I'm not going to hold my breath, but you know. No, I don't think Scholastic is going to change <laughs> their mind. Absolutely not. All right. Well, on that note, um, that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba. Um, as always, your thanks to for compiling all the book and publication news for our episode. Um, I guess before we go, uh, can you remind us what we are reading for book club this month? Yeah, sure. So we are reading Natural Beauty by Ling Ling Huang, and it is a creepy novel that follows a young Chinese American pianist who takes a job at a holistic wellness company, uh, aka Goop. And <laughs> this is where she learns the extent where her new employer will go into making their privileged clients happy. So it is a novel that, you know, explores western beauty standards race wellness culture and for those of you guys who have not tackled this book yet um i heard there are some trigger warnings of body horror gore uh mention of sexual assault and forced drugging so please proceed with caution but we've already had um 
some book club members say they had a good time reading this. So yeah, yeah I'm looking forward to discussing it at the end of the month. Yeah, a perfect choice um, for Spooky Month 2023. So thank you to our Patreon subscribers who um, who suggested it. And as always, if you are a member of our Patreon, you do have a say in the books that we read um, at least once a quarter. So um, definitely check it out. Again, it's patreon.com slash booksandboba. Um, and if you want to read it along but haven't gotten the book yet, um, the book is available for sale at our Books and Boba bookshop. Um, you can, if you go to booksandboba.com and click on the bookshop link, you can get a copy of Natural Beauty um, alongside uh, a lot of other great books that we've covered on this podcast. Um, your purchase not only helps support the Books and Boba podcast, but also your local bookstore. So definitely check it out. Yeah. So with that said, thank you so much for listening to our mid-month episode for October. And uh, we'll see you guys next time. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian-American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Charlene Kay. I'm a musician, songwriter, and guitarist. Growing up, I loved music. Whether it was pop, acoustic, emo, I ate it all up. But as a Chinese-American kid living in Scottsdale, Arizona, I also felt isolated, never really seeing artists who looked like me or shared my experiences. So after years of performing on stages all over the world, I wanted to create a space to highlight the amazing Asian musicians who I knew were out there, just not always getting played on the radio. That's why I started Golden Hour, a podcast where Asian singers, songwriters, instrumentalists, and music producers share their personal stories. And it's a space for you to discover your new favorite artist. Listen to Golden Hour with me, Charlene Kay, wherever you get your podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective. 